If you have a Bible, if you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11, I'd like to look at that passage with you for just a few minutes today. Also, I want to say hello to those who are watching in on Facebook. Thank you for joining us on Facebook as well. 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the men where he knew there were valiant men, to the place where he knew there were valiant men. The men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, if he says to you, Why did you go so near to the city of, to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot you from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubbesheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near to the wall? Then you shall say, your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. So I can proudly say that I've never run out of gas before. However, I have come painfully, painfully close. Uh, For whatever reason, I don't like to pump gas. And so I tend to put it off a little bit longer than I should. For example, about a month ago, uh, me and my wife were running some errands, and uh, I had an opportunity to get some gas. I saw the gas gauge was getting low, but I thought to myself, well, I'll just wait till later, wait till our way home, and then I'll get some gas. So we went to my in-law's house. They live out in Wilson, and uh, we left. It was about 9.30 at night, so I thought, well... Uh, we'll just stop at the gas station on the way, way home. I had about 13 miles to empty at that point. So drive there uh, right to Bailey's on 425 and Lockport Road. 
I pull in with like three miles left and I realize that gas stations are closing early because of COVID. So I got three miles left, and if you're familiar with that area at all, there's no other gas stations anywhere around there. So I don't have enough gas to get home. Not sure if I should start heading in the direction of home or try to go to the closest one. So I decided I was going to try to go to the closest one, which is uh, in Niagara Falls, right by the airport, a speedway. So I thought if maybe the speedway will be open. It's a big, big chain. Maybe they'll be open. So I'm driving there, and as I'm driving there, I start to realize that I could really be in some trouble here. Uh, me and my wife are, have our baby in the back seat, and I don't even know what someone could do for us because if we called, uh, you know, my parents or Stephanie's parents, if they didn't have any gas on hand, they couldn't buy gas if we couldn't buy gas. So we head to the speedway and we get there literally on fumes, and it was closed. So then, uh, my last ditch hope. I thought, well, my parents' business is around the corner, so maybe if I can make it there, at least if we run out of gas, we'll be there, and maybe I can find some gas somewhere there. But I knew from working there that oftentimes they didn't keep a lot of gas on hand for the, gas, uh, for the lawnmowers. So not sure if I'm going to be able to get there. Finally, I'm really careful in how I'm pressing the gas, and I able to make it there and thankfully that very day my dad had filled up the gas can. But think about that situation and I didn't realize that I was in trouble until it was almost too late. I, I thought to myself well I'll just get some gas on my way home won't be an issue. Didn't even think that there was trouble lying ahead and it was almost too late. And I think we do the in the way that we view sin. We don't realize that it's a problem. Like I put that gas gauge kind of out of my mind, we put sin out of our minds until we get to a point where it just kind of hits us in the face where it's almost too late for us to turn back. And as minimize sin and minimize that reality and that it's a problem in our life. Now, if you look at our culture, notice the language that we use to describe sin. We often say that someone struggles with a certain thing. They struggle with uh, pornography, or they struggle with gossip, or they struggle with overeating. And when we say that, when we say uh, we struggle with that, it's almost like we make ourselves out to be the victim. That I'm struggling with this thing that's attacking me, not that I am choosing to sin. We speak who has sex outside of marriage as being sexually active, when in, in times past they would call that fornication. A person who's greedy, who doesn't care about as being frugal or being responsible. We call uh, homosexuality an act of love rather than as sin as the Bible defines it. We call television with explicit content edgy rather than sinful. We refer to sin as mistakes. And we act as if we don't have a problem until we get far down on that spiral of sin where the effects are so deadly that they just kind of hit us in the face. St. Augustine once said this, he said, my sin was all the more incurable because I did not think myself a sinner. And the truth is we can't change unless we realize that we have a problem. We can't change, we can't 
exit that spiral of sin unless we realize that there's an issue. And in the passage that we're looking at today, we're going to see a profound fall from a man who had been following after God with all of his heart. David had been following hard after God. We see that he had great faith in fighting Goliath. We see that God had entered into a special covenant with him. We see that God chose to show mercy on King Saul rather than take matters into his own hands. We saw that uh, he showed favor to Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, who was a lame man, rather than executing him, which was the tradition of the kings. And yet, in this passage, we see that David enters this deadly spiral of sin. And I believe as we look at this spiral that he enters, I think it can be informative, for, number one, helping us to avoid entering into that spiral of sin. And second, how to get out of it if we find ourselves in that downward spiral of sin. So there's a few things we learn about, this, about sin in this passage. The first thing we learn is that sin often begins with idleness and a lack of direction. Now we see at the beginning of this passage, it says that it was the time when kings often went out to war. But it says that David was at his home in Jerusalem. Now this was something that was not a sin. It wasn't wrong for him to stay home in Jerusalem. It was something that sometimes kings would do, that they would send out uh, their uh, trusted generals to fight on their behalf. But it certainly appears like there's a lack of focus on David's part. It clearly appears like he's not the same person. He's not acting the same way that he did in the past. He's not the same one who is fighting for the chance to fight against Goliath and trusted in God every step of the way. He's, it doesn't seem like he's the same one who's uh, going out to fight against all of Israel's enemies. It says that he's lounging around Jerusalem. He's laying on his couch, walking on the rooftop. Seems like he's not focused in on the things of God. And again, it's not that he's necessarily sinning or doing something terribly wrong, but he's starting to lose focus on the things of God. Randy Elkhorn writes this, Immorality is a cumulative product of small indulgences and minuscule compromises, the immediate consequences of which were at this time indiscernible. It's very rare that somebody will wake up one morning and decide that they're going to do some, uh, commit some terrible sin. Very rare that someone wakes up and say, hey, today I'm going to commit adultery or today I'm going to uh, murder somebody. It usually starts with little small compromises. Maybe even with things that are not necessarily even wrong. Uh, it starts with losing focus on God. Maybe it starts with neglecting the spiritual disciplines, neglecting time in prayer. Maybe it starts with neglecting time with our families. As we all know, there's an election coming up in November. And I'm certainly not going to talk politics. But as we look at that election, it's starting kind of the advertising, political advertising season. And uh, millions and millions of people are spending, uh, of the candidates are spending uh, money on, uh, on reaching people. And what's interesting is they're trying to reach a very certain subset of people. Now, there's some people who are staunchly Republican and some people who are staunchly Democrat. And when they run these ads, they're not trying to reach those people necessarily. I mean, they might wish that those people would change their mind, but a person that goes to a Democratic rally or a Republican rally, they're unlikely to change their mind just because they see an advertisement. 
But then there's a subset of people in between who are maybe independent or who maybe lean one way or the other but are not really decided on how they're going to vote and are not really firm in their footing. And those are the people that the uh, candidates focus their attention and money on because those are the people who can be swayed. And I think the same thing is true spiritually. When we're focused in on the things of God, certainly the devil is going to try to derail us. He'd like to derail us. He'll do everything that he can to derail us. But when we're focused in on the mission of God, it's easier to say no to the temptations around us because we know what we're doing. We know where we're going. Versus having this mindset where we're kind of wishy-washy, where we don't know what we're doing. We don't lack, we lack purpose. We lack direction. We don't know if we really want to trust in God or if we, if we don't want to trust in God. And we're open to the persuasion of the enemy. And so the spiral often begins with idleness and lack of direction, even if that initial first move isn't sinful in and of itself. The second thing we learn in this passage is that every sin is a relational sin. Now we think about sin and sometimes we think about sin as kind of arbitrary rules that God created and that we just have to follow those rules. But every sin that we could possibly commit is a relational sin and it's, it's relational against God or against other people or against both, which often is the case. And we see in this passage that it is the case. And we see the untold story and the untold ramifications of David's sin. This is clearly not a private sin. We know, of course, that it harms Uriah, of course, because uh, David stole his wife, murdered him, so he's the most obvious one that it affected, but it also affected Bathsheba in a profound way. Now, in this story, we're not told exactly what Bathsheba's response was. We don't know for sure if she uh, might have been welcoming this advance of David or not, but it's not told that in the text, and it, it seems to suggest otherwise, though we don't know for sure. But you think about the effects of David's sin, and David is the most powerful person in all of Israel, maybe the most powerful person in the world, and he uses his position to defraud someone and to, and to take her from her husband. And as a result, Bathsheba has to deal with the death of her child. She has to deal with the death of her husband. And so we see all of these effects that it has on the relationships around David. It's not a private sin. There is no such thing as a private sin. But it's also a sin against God. In chapter 12, uh, Nathan comes and he speaks the word of the Lord to David. And Nathan gives a, pro a proverb or a parable to David. And he says there's a, there was a rich man who had many sheep. And then there was a poor man who had one little sheep. And the rich man came and stole from the poor man. Now, as we look at chapter 12, we don't have time to, to delve into that fully today. But as we look at chapter 12, it's interesting that the murder and the adultery are not the things that are emphasized in this chapter. Now, if I was writing this chapter, if I was God, I would, I would come down on the murder and the adultery. But though those things are important, that's not the emphasis of the text in chapter 12. The emphasis of the text is that God says that David took what wasn't his. He took what wasn't his. St. Augustine notes that one summer he robbed a pear tree before he became a believer. And he talks about how he, didn't, he desired to rob the pear tree not because he wanted the fruit or because he was hungry or poor, 
He had a number of pears himself, better ones in his own orchard, but he took delight in the sin. He says, but I took joy in the theft and in the sin. And this story is not simply a story of a man who lusted after another uh, man's wife, although it is that. It's a story of a man who chose to take what was not his. A man who was given everything but said, it's not enough. God tells him that in chapter 12, verse 7 to 8. It says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wife into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and all of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. God is like, I gave you everything you could ever want, everything that you needed, and it wasn't enough for you. And David said, I'm the king, sees this beautiful woman, and I deserve to take this woman for myself. Yet God had given him everything. He'd entered into a special covenant relationship with him, provided for him uh, physically, financially, spiritually, relationally, and yet David said it's not enough. And I think sometimes we can do something similar. God has given us so many blessings in our life, so many things that we have to be thankful for, and yet when we choose to sin, what we're in essence doing, saying what you've given me is not enough. And we take matters into our own hands. In doing these things, David has become the king that Samuel warned about in 1 Samuel 8, the king who takes rather than gives. In essence, he's become the new Saul. One who sins more and more and goes deeper and deeper down that spiral of sin. So every sin that we could commit is a relational sin against others or against God. The third thing we learn about sin in this passage is that we will not be rescued from the cycle of sin unless we hear the word of the Lord. David is the most powerful person in this area, in the region, maybe in the world, and he probably feels invincible, and if anyone fears for their life, they're not going to cross David. And so he can basically do whatever he wants. It appears that his servants didn't question him when he called for Bathsheba to be brought to him. Seems that Joab didn't question him when he ordered Joab to kill Uriah. And so he's allowed to sin and have his sin is unrestrained because no one is going to question him. Now I look at our culture and uh, 50 years ago maybe there was kind of this social pressure in many ways to do things that were spiritual or good. Now of course that wasn't perfect. There were many blind spots that our culture had. Certainly, uh, in some ways, we wouldn't want to go back there. But there was this social pressure to do things that were good, to go to church, to care for one's family. And, and now in the culture that we live in, that social pressure isn't there anymore. There's no social pressure to uh, do well, to do good anymore. If we're go down and enter that spiral of sin, probably no one is going to question us. No one is going to stop us. And our culture might even come alongside and encourage us in that endeavor, say, keep going deeper and deeper. And so from a worldly standpoint, no one is going to stop that descent of sin for us. The only thing that can stop and bring us out of our sin is a word from the Lord, the word of God. We can't depend on the, men, the opinions of men or our own insight or direction because when we do that, we'll just go deeper and deeper in that spiral. The only thing that can bring us out is the Word of God. 
So the only thing that can bring us out is the Word of God. Finally, we see in this passage that grace is greater than all of our sins. As we look at this passage and examine the things that David did, the list is quite damning. Sloth, lust, covetousness, adultery, deception, murder. We see that he failed to trust in God's promises. We see that he got Bathsheba involved in his sin. He got Joab involved in his sin. And it doesn't get any more uh, slimy or depraved than what David does. And even David himself recognizes that there should be judgment coming for him. When Nathan gives him the parable of the rich man that stole the poor man's sheep, Nathan's like, so what should be done to that man? And uh, David declares emphatically, not knowing that he's that man, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. His fate should have been the same as King Saul, whose kingdom was ripped out of his hands, and yet God chooses not to do that. David repents with all of his heart, and God chooses to show him mercy. It's not fair, but it's grace. And the truth is that each and every one of us have done things that are wrong, and each and every one of us deserve that same fate, God's judgment. And yet God decided that he was going to die in, in uh, David's place that he was going to die in my place, in your place. So David was not cast outside of the kingdom, and as believers, we're not cast out of the kingdom because of what Jesus did on our behalf. And there's none of us who are too far from grace. The hope of the gospel is not that God saves good, respectable church people. It's that God saves broken, messed up, deplorable sinners. That's the hope of the gospel. That's the hope of the cross. That's what we cling to. And as we see in the scriptures, again and again, God delivers people who are broken and in their sin. He delivers Paul, who was a blasphemer, who was persecuting the church, who stood at the feet of Stephen as he was being martyred. He shows mercy to a dishonest tax collector in Zacchaeus. He shows grace to Peter who denied him three times. He showed grace to a thief on the cross. And he showed grace to those who brutalized and tore his body to shreds as he cried out on the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. There's nobody who's too far gone. There's no one that's too far from God's grace. And a huge lie that the enemy wants us to believe is that we are too far gone, that there's no sense in turning around, that we might as well just descend further into that spiral because we're only going to find judgment. There's a story about a businessman, and the businessman uh, came across this widow who was really in a, a difficult situation. She wasn't able to pay for her rent, uh, very, very poor, and he decided that he was going to raise some money to cover her rent for a couple months. So he talks to, to some business associates, and he was able to raise two months' rent. And so he went to this lady's house, knocks on the door. She, he knew that she was in there, but she didn't come to the door. So he waited a second, he knocked a second time, nobody came to the door. He waited a second, he knocked a third time, but still nobody came to the door. So the only thing he could do was leave. A couple days later, he saw the same woman on the street, again, destitute. And he came over and told what happened. He says, I, well, I came to your house, I raised this money to pay for your rent, and I knew you were in there, but you didn't come to the door. And she gasped and put her hand over her mouth and said, oh, 
I thought you were the landlord that was coming to evict me. And I think we sometimes have that same attitude when it comes to God. We think that God is going to condemn us, that God is going to judge us rather than heal us. Yet when we repent, when we turn to Him, His desire is to make us new. Some of us might say, on the other hand, well, it's not fair that a murderer would be forgiven. It's not fair that someone who did these terrible things would be forgiven. Does that mean that you can just go and do whatever you want and then ask forgiveness and it makes it okay? Well, if that's you, let me just say kindly and graciously, that's kind of getting to a dangerous place. It's a dangerous place when we say, well, there's bad, evil people out there who deserve judgment, but I don't deserve judgment. I'm not bad. I don't do things wrong because we all deserve God's judgment. Romans 3.23 says we're all fallen short of the glory of God. Do we really want God to treat us according to our sins? Do we really want God to judge us each time we sin? But that being said, just because... David is forgiven doesn't mean that there aren't severe consequences for what he did. And I can guarantee you, as you look at the Psalms, if David had to do it over again, there's no way he would have went down that path. He has to experience the death of his child. He experienced warfare within his own family. His own son's going to try to, to oust him from the kingdom. He's going to experience conflict for the rest of his life. Very extreme consequences for his actions. And that's why as believers we need to be careful that we don't get down that spiral of sin. Even if we're going to heaven, we can have severe consequences on this earth and cause untold harm from our sin. Sin often leads, to, it begins with idleness, lack of direction. Every sin's a relational sin. We won't be rescued from our sin apart from the word of the Lord. And finally, grace is greater than all of our sin. N.T. Wright gives an illustration I think that's helpful. He says, think about a, something that you're really afraid of. Think about maybe an animal that you're afraid of, a spider or a bear or a lion or whatever they, that might be. And you're walking down the street and you turn around the corner and you see that animal in front of you. What are you going to do? You're going to run away as fast as you can. But then on the other hand, think about the person that's closest to you in your life. And say you haven't seen that person for an uh, extended period of time. And then you're walking down the street and they're in front of you. What are you going to do? You're going to run as fast as you can to get to that person. And I think that's a picture of what we're supposed to do as believers. We're supposed to run from what's going to destroy us, run from our sin, and run to our Savior. And that's something that we need to do each and every day. Each and every day we need to run from our sin and run to our Savior. It's not something we do once and are done with because the enemy is crafty and temptations are strong and we need to run from our sin each day. And when we do find ourselves in that spiral of sin, the antidote is the same. We run, we repent, and we run to Jesus and we find mercy and grace. That's the prescription that we see in this passage. Running from our sin, running to our Savior. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you treat us not as our sins deserve, but according to your grace and mercy because of what you did in the cross and resurrection. Lord, I pray that we would run from sin with all of our strength, that we would resist it with every ounce of our being, that we would run from it right at the beginning, that we wouldn't get far down in that spiral of sin, that we would exit quickly and avoid the consequences of going down that path. Lord, for those who are maybe on that path today, Lord, I pray that you'd give them courage, courage to run from their sin, courage to repent, knowing that you're not going to condemn them, that you're going to heal them. You're going to restore them. You're going to change them and make them new. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.